of God. But in the plan of God, it was all accounted for. God knew it would happen. It was even prophesied. See, prophecy does not overrule volition. And those are things that, that we have to stop and think about. Prophecy doesn't overrule volition. Prophecy recognizes volition. Is it God's will for the Antichrist to rise to power? It's described in the, in the, the Word of God, but the Antichrist is going to rise to power of his own volition, of his own free will, if you will, and people are going to worship him and bow down to him and proclaim him to be a god of their own free will. It's not the directive will of God, but it's understood within his omniscience. And he tells, what he's displaying what his omniscience is to us. Now, we know within this, if within this amazing plan, we have divine standards. These are standards of righteousness. For example, the Ten Commandments are standards of righteousness that are given. Uh, we don't have honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy anymore, the Fourth Commandment. But we have a moment-by-moment -moment Sabbath is what Christians have in the church age. But it's a recognition on a day-to-day -day basis, moment-by-moment -moment basis of the Creator. Because that's what the Sabbath was made for, to stop and think about the Creator. Just read Exodus chapter 20. His divine standards. How does he want us to live? How then shall we live? A big question. Well, he's given us quite a, quite a series of directives and, and principles to do that. Now, the worldly standards of the works of the flesh, those are sins. And that, there's a big list. You know, I actually tried multiple times over the last 40 years to make an exhaustive list of sins. And I, it <laughs> never runs out. <laughs> I, I don't have, I do not have an exhaustive list of things that God lists as <clears throat> off limits. Because when we pull them into our culture, there's things here that, that we have to make decisions on. And that it's, uh, is it the wisdom from above or the wisdom from below that we're making the decisions on? Because if it's the wisdom from below, then it's probably sin and it's not, not part of it. But see, his plans accounted for all this. He gave the directions, like, Adam, you see that tree in the middle of the garden? Don't eat from it. His, his, his uh, directions are usually pretty simple to understand, not so easy to carry out, but that's normally the way that, that he does that. He gives divine standards. When you align with those, it's called righteousness, and that's part of his plan. But the worldly standards are, are unrighteousness, and that's when we decide we're going to go a different direction uh, than, than we should, and we fall off into sin. Now, <clears throat> when we're given a direction, we're going to be tested. Have you, have you noticed that? Sometimes we're tested for good, or we're tempted to trust the world. Are we tested? We're tested to trust God, right? And we're tempted to trust the world. And the Greek word and the Hebrew word actually are both the same. The Greek word is peirazo and it's word group. Uh, and it's translated test or tempt depending on the context. So that tells me that any given set of circumstances is both a test and a temptation. 
You have a test to do to trust God and do what's right, or a temptation to trust the world and do what is gratifying to yourself. That's what we have. And see, God's plan accounts for all this. That's what this is about. He accounts for all uh, the tests. And the tests we pass, by the way, we get rewarded for those. That's, that's nice. The temptations that we fail, that's called sin. And when that comes, discipline. That's what happens. And that's part of what we're going to cover in this chapter. Because after we go through the first nine chapters and we've established that once you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have it forevermore, the obvious question, is that a license to sin? Well, Paul wrote about it in Romans 5, the end of Romans 5 and chapter 6. He says, shall we sin so grace shall abound? May it never be. That's what he says. Meganoida in the Greek is really strong. Absolutely not is what he's saying. The test to trust God, the temptation to trust the world. And that's, that's the big deal. Now, with the divine standards, he gives us absolutes. And the worldly standards, we know they're absolutes that... Um, uh, we don't, we, that at worldly standards are against the absolutes of God. Now, if we follow the worldly standards, we have disobeyed the, uh, we have disobeyed the absolutes God's God has established. And what, what absolutes does, is he established? The absolutes are there is a God and you're not him. That's one of them. That's where it all starts. There is a God and you're not him. The third point of that is you can't become him. Much like, uh, unlike what the world's trying to tell you right now, that you can evolve into Godhood. Now, <clears throat> when we fall prey to those as believers, the power of sin has won that battle. It's won that battle with us at that point in time. How about the absolutes that he's given us whenever we obey them? Now, what, is the, what are the absolutes? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, the, the fruit of the Spirit. What are the absolutes that are disobeyed? The works of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, and that big list of uh, sins that fall about. See, when we obey the absolutes, then starting with the first one, which is believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, the penalty of sins are erased. So this penalty of sins erased. Now God knows exactly how many people are going to accept the offering of His Son in their place on a cross throughout the course of history. He does. You remember reading Revelation 20 and the books were open. Hmm. What are the books? Well, the books are those who have been written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life. The other book is the Book of Life, a big book of life as it's called. This big book of life writes down the names of every human being who would ever live. And if they die in unbelief, they're erased. That explains Revelation 3, a passage that people have trouble with. And you know what happens when the books are open? Those two books are going to balance. You're going to have the same list of names written before the foundation of the world that the omniscience of God knew who it was going to be. And the ones that die in unbelief, that are all erased out of there, that's exactly the same. It's kind of like if you had, uh, if you wrote down the name, uh, names of all your uh, grandkids 
on one sheet of paper, and then you wrote down the names of everybody else's grandkids on another sheet of paper, including your own, and then you're just trying to get rid of everybody on the, on the one side that's not your grandkid, and you start erasing those names, what are you going to have when you get done? The same list. Well, that's what he's, what he's telling us. Now, <clears throat> his directive will also has some relatives in it. This is where some people get relativism into play, and they make it a... Uh, they make it a standard. When people say there are no absolutes or there is no absolute truth, then they've decided they're going to live in a relativistic society whenever they do that. But there is some relatives as related to directive will. For example, uh, we're going to see them as we, as we get a full list here in just a second. This... Uh, uh, so I can get this thing to move. Let's try that. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Hmm. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I have to think about that. We're not under the Mosaic law anymore, are we? So all things are lawful. Okay. We're, we're free. That's what it means. But not all things are profitable. And that's what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Intent, speech, and actions, yeah. You're free to think anything you want to, say anything you want to, and act any way you want to. But not everything is profitable. <laughs> Especially if you're trying to do the directive will of God. Now, <clears throat> this includes things like vocation. You know, I've seen people do interesting things. They, they pull the Bible out. They open up. Uh, I heard of one guy pulled out the Bible. He was looking for a vocation. And so he opened the Bible up, kind of fanned the pages out, closed his eyes, and went like that. And said, and they went down to the sea in ships. And he decided his, his call was to join the Navy. That's not really a way to choose your vocation in life it's just it's a mystical magical type of way to do it and that's not the way God expects it. he says learn my word ask me for wisdom see the simple directives of the will of God and he'll show you where your vocation needs to be if you seek him what are our intents supposed to be our intent should be to do good Paul said, I make it my ambition to be pleasing to him in everything that I do. That's what I want to do. The intense, the speech. Speech should build other people up, not tear other people down. And our actions should be doing good for all people in regard to our vocation. We want a vocation that serves other people. Okay? We don't want to be in a vocation that tears other people down, chews other people up. How about hygiene? We're not under the law anymore. You're not mandated to do a spring cleaning every year. And for some of us, that's a great relief to do that. We're not mandated to do a, a, a spring cleaning every year. Hygiene, you know, you can take a bath more often than Saturday nights if you 
feel like doing that. I mean, hygiene is left to you. There's a hygiene code found within the Mosaic Law, part of the 613 commandments. We're not under that. That's good to know. What about diet? Ooh, all the thou shalt not eat shrimps and lobster, all those crustaceans and shellfish, any kind of fish without scales. No catfish? What kind of world would this be? <laughs> but that's what God put off limits to the Jews. That's what he did. Pork, certain elements of the dietary code, he just said, no more. You're not going to, I don't want you to eat it. Why? I've heard all, I've read all kinds of commentaries. Well, there was a problem with the fish that they were getting out of the Mediterranean. Back then, it was going to cause them problems and da-da-da. It was a test. <laughs> simply put, simply understood, God said, don't do it. Okay? What, did the, what was his divine standard? Don't eat this stuff. What was the world standards? Go ahead, it won't matter. It was a test, just much like the tree in the garden, in the, in the middle of the garden. And then, uh, dietary code. Acts chapter 10 kind of throws a ringer into that. People that want to bring the Old Testament into the New Testament, whenever Peter gets a vision, and all these unclean animals coming down out of heaven on this big bed sheet that God brings to him, and then he says, Arise, pill it, Peter, kill and eat. And you can almost hear Peter's sanctimonious response. Lord, nothing unclean has ever touched these lips. Maybe that was true. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't true. <laughs> we'll ask Peter when we get there. But the Lord said, did you just hear what I said? These things are, all, all foods are clean. The Lord did it in Mark 7 earlier, but it took Peter a while to figure that one out. So the Lord came back to him and said, it's all there. It's all for you. Clothing. What kind of clothing should we wear? We had conversations about modesty. That depends on the culture you find yourself in. Because there are cultures that it is perfectly modest for people to go around with nothing but a loincloth on. We have people on that back wall back there that minister to people in National Geographic places. And they don't have clothes on. One of the biggest mistakes they say missionaries make is they come in and try to impose their culture on a tribe. And that puts the wrong emphasis on things when they need to learn about who Jesus is. And then you'd work with the other stuff after that is after that is done. Shelter. What kind of house should you live in? No directive will on that. I can find anywhere in scripture. Uh, you don't even need a shelter. Son of man didn't have a place to lay his head. Economics. What do you invest in? How do you invest in? Should you have life insurance? Not have life insurance. I don't see any mandates in there. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and learn from his ways. Put some things up for the future. Those are the principles that you find. Economics, just general preferences, and politics. That falls under where? <laughs> Relatives. What should you do when politics come into play? It should have a God-centered base to it. That's where we should vote. That's how we should think, act, and speak. That's what we should do. 
But there's a lot of variations in that as we've seen over the course of history and time. Now our decisions can go from bad to worse to worst. That's what they are. They start off bad frequently and uh, just like Judas decided to betray the Lord. That was a bad decision. It got a lot worse when he went and made a deal with the, with the chief priest. That's a worse decision. He pursued it. He made the decision to pursue, but then he pursued it. And then when he actually betrayed him, that was a worse decision. You would actually go a little farther than that because his worst decision was to go out and commit suicide. Hmm, that was the worst of the batch, wasn't it? Bad worst to worst. But see, our decisions can also go from, from good to better to best. Hmm. You make a decision, you want to find out about who Jesus is. It's better when you start looking. When you start looking in his word and reading what his word has to say. Best decisions when you choose him for your salvation. That's the best decision. So <clears throat> we have the plan of God, the battleground. Satan is putting his efforts into this. He is trying to confuse us between God's absolutes and man's absolutes. He's trying to confuse us with testing to trust God or temptation to trust, trust the world and trust man. He is trying to tell us that some of our decisions that we think are good are really bad. That's what he does. He calls evil good and he calls good evil. That's the way he works. And we're living in a world right now that uh, uh, he has made dramatic inroads in. How can it be called good to go burn down buildings in a civilized society? How can that be called good? Don't understand that one. Nothing good about that. Going destroying somebody else's property that's not yours. One of the big things about the Mosaic Law, it teaches about the importance of your, your personal space, your property. Your privacy, it teaches about those things. The plan of God, the battleground. Now, God's plan allows for all of this. You think you know God and got him all figured out? It's hard to figure him out in our own life, isn't it? Multiply it by 7 billion people alive on the planet right now. And then add to it those who have gone beforehand. It's estimated that half the people who have ever lived are alive on the earth right now. Ah, isn't that scary? But here we are. And God sees the end from the beginning and I'm so comforted to know he's not upset like we are. He knows what's going to happen. He knows Satan's defeat. He's already told us how it's going to come out. What kind of peace should we have with that? What kind of hope should we have? That's what we should have, knowing what's the, he's got the whole world in his hands. He does. That's what he does. His plan is going to come to fruition. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Whatever he says, whatever he's revealed, whatever he's put in his word, that's going to happen. So how confident can we be in prophecy that he's going to come back? We can be thoroughly confident in that. We may not understand some things, but it does not negate his amazing plan that he has uh, set forth. Now, the Bible vocabulary for the will of man. 
So we've looked at the plan of God. We've looked at the plan of God and what is some of the vocabulary he uses for us. Because he has a plan, he has a will, he is, uh, he is given us the ability to decide and we look at faith. Faith is about what we believe in, not what we're able to believe. Because all the merit of faith is in the object. You can believe with all your heart you can save yourself. You don't have the power. The object's unworthy. You can believe with all, your, with all your ability to generate and create a faith in something that you're going to save the planet. Not possible. Because it's out of your control. It's out of your sphere. It's out of, out of your range. Faith is about what we believe in or who we believe in. And that means we've made a decision concerning who or what that we're going to believe. There's a whole lot of people believe with all their heart the wrong stuff all over the world. It, that's the way it is. But that's what faith is. Believe is the word pistuo. And it's just the verb form of faith. It is the act of putting your faith in a certain object and uh, deciding what it's going to be. That makes us responsible for what we believe in. That's what faith, it's a non-meritorious act, is the way that faith is viewed in Scripture. Repent, metanoia. Now that word often gets kind of twisted around a lot of things, but noia is the word for mind. Meta means to change. It means very simply in the Greek, change the mind. And it, this is a decision. When mankind is called to repent, it means to change their mind, and stop one belief and adopt another. Okay? Whenever a person's involved in sin and they think that sin is okay, then their repentance is stop believing that sin's okay and start believing that it's not because it's not directive will of God. And then the last one is testing. And that's, I mentioned that earlier, parasmos is the noun form. Parazzo is the verb. They both are translated test or tempt depending on the context. And it indicates that a choice has to be made, whether for good or evil. Whether you're going to trust God or you're going to trust man, or trust yourself. That's frequently the way that's done. This is some of the basic vocabulary of the will of man. Again, the book's going to have a lot more information in it. And with, with that, you're able to open that up and get a, good, good, a, a better feel. Especially if you... Read the verses. You have books that have the verses at the bottom. Wherever it's cited and footnoted, it's written out the bottom. So you don't have to fan the ear uh, doing uh, sword drills, what we used to call them, fanning through the Bible. I used to love those things. I could take that Bible and fan it just like that and find Jonah in a heartbeat. Sometimes you want to uh, mark some things to make it easier to find certain passages. But... Uh, <clears throat> You, you can able, you're able to just look down there and go, yeah, that says that, or no, it doesn't say that, or I don't understand it, or I need to study more. The vocabulary, every command found in Scripture requires a, deci a decision on the part of a recipient as to whether or not to obey it. Some people don't believe there is any volition. Some people believe it's all foreordained. And yet every command in Scripture says, decide. It does. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe is the command. Okay? It calls for a decision. 
That's what a command does. I think there's 1,400 and something in the New Testament. I have it written down somewhere. It's not written up here yet. But it's, I have it written down somewhere how many commands there are. Pure commands found in the New Testament. I like the word behold. It means take a real good look at something. It's a command. And it's an interesting word because uh, behold says stop. So are you going to behold it or not? <laughs> are you stopping paying attention or not? We're looking at words uh, last Sunday and this Sunday, be on guard. Oh, those are powerful words. That says get yourself ready. It's a command. See, in the last days, we're told over and over again to be on guard. That we don't fall prey to all these problems and these false teachers and everything else. Well, we got to have a decision to make when we have a command like that. Are we going to learn so we can identify the problem? Are we just going to go waffling through life hoping we don't get hurt too bad in the, in the process? Every command requires a decision on the part as to whether or not to obey it. The absolute good decisions. Now, it's not, that's a whole lot of adjectives to go with that. Absolute and good decision. A decision is, of course, what you make. There are absolutes. There are things that you can say without question that are good. And they include attitudes and actions. And when you make a decision, anybody makes a decision that is based on an absolute, this is what God wants from me, these actions are called righteous. When you believe in Jesus Christ, that is an absolutely good decision. And it's called a righteous decision. And what happens when you believe in Jesus Christ? God gives you his righteousness called imputation. You are declared righteous before the courts, as you will. You are declared righteous at that point in time. You made a righteous decision. God imputes his righteousness to you. And that is one of the, that's the greatest thing can happen to us. We start thinking about the good things and the great things and what we like to see in our life and all that. The, the most important thing that ever happened to you in your life is when you put your faith in Christ that he imputed his righteousness to you. Because that's your ticket into eternity and, and we don't even have a clue. Paul wrote about being caught up into the third heaven. <laughs> he came back and he said, I can't really tell you about it. I don't think he was prohibited. I don't think he had the vocabulary. I think that's why he's trying. I can't describe heaven to you. What I saw. It's so hard to even fathom what it is. Now there are also absolutely bad decisions. Okay, if you go against an absolute good decision, you've made an absolute bad decision. They involve attitudes and actions. These are called inherent evil. The, he, the Greek word uses kakos for it. So there's good decisions, there's bad decisions. And what happens when we make the wrong decisions? Well, this is, this is what sometimes people lose sight of. People become believers, and especially we've ministered overseas in a lot of different places. And a lot of the people overseas don't believe that once you are saved, you're always saved. 
There's a couple of things we run into everywhere we go over and over and over again. And that's part of why this book was written. It was the, one of the generating factors to put this whole thing together. Because we've had pastors, we can't tell people they won't lose their salvation. They'll just run off into sin. It's a good point. It's an issue. How do you answer that? Well, the Bible answers that. Divine discipline comes into our life when we start going against the, the decisions that God has established as His directive will that are righteous. Divine discipline hits. Now, we've got to be careful with that because um, sometimes people... Uh, jump into things and it's, it's easy when we know discipline can occur from God that we start uh, 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 applying it to other people. Well, that person's under discipline. Mm, you're sure about that. Oftentimes it comes about when it has to do with legalistic issues. Discipline can come from the world. For violation of laws or standards. Now, when you violate a law, because God said obey the laws of the land. Unless they do what? Violate his laws. And then you do like Daniel did and say, no, I'm not going to bow down to an idol. I'm not going to pray in private. That's not what I'm going to do. And then you bear that penalty of the world, even though it's an unrighteous law for doing that. But God gave and established governments with the authority to set and administer laws. And I'm glad they have it. They just have overdone it. Uh, I don't think anybody would argue with that. They put speed limits on streets for a reason. <laughs> there, you don't need to be doing 80 in a 30-mile zone. Why do they make it a 30-mile zone? Just so they can write tickets? Conspiracy theorists think that. But usually they write, they set a 30 mile an hour zone or 20 or 25 outside of a school out there because they got kids running around. It's a matter of safety. And they have full authority to make that and we are expected by God to obey those. Now, <clears throat> there are deserved, there's deserved discipline for crimes or policy violations. Whenever we violate the, what God has established for us, that's deserved discipline that comes into our life. But it's undeserved when we're suffering for Christ's sake. Now, what happens if we decide, which we have, that um, uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, and we will not ordain gay marriages? Well, we believe that's what the Word of God says, that that's the way it should be done. Now, what happens if we get our tax-exempt status pulled from us as a result of that? Because I can guarantee you that's coming. It's coming quickly. The government is going to say, well, you're a tax-exempt, your land is tax-exempt, and because you're tax-exempt, we can tell you what you got to believe. That's another step toward totalitarianism exactly what it is. You know, in China, they permit Catholics to exist, they permit Muslims to exist, they permit Christians to exist, but they have to swear allegiance to the state. How far will we go in America? Because that's the way it's headed. When you suffer for Christ's sake, 
And you say, no, I'm going to stand up for what the Word of God has to say. That's undeserved. And God will bless you for that. Maybe not in time. We get our eyes too much on the things of the world. The Jews got their eyes on the things of the world in the first advent. Think about it. What did they want? They wanted a Messiah that would come throw out the Romans and establish his kingdom on earth. That's what they were looking for. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they were singing that, that's what they were expecting. Jesus is coming in, riding on a donkey. Hey, we've been waiting for him for a long time now. Here he is. Okay, when do we get started? We're going to start killing Romans. The zealots were all for that. Boy, they've been ready to kill Romans for a long time. He said, now you've got a bigger problem than that. It's called sin. I've got to take care of that first before all my enemies are defeated. They missed that. Why did they miss Messiah? Because they had their eyes on the things of the world and not on the things of God. Now, <clears throat> discipline can come from the world for a violation of laws or standards. Discipline can come from God. Sometimes you have to just say the Lord rebuke you. Because you don't have authority to administer discipline. It's not in your wheelhouse, uh, if you will. And you have to say the Lord rebuke you. Discipline, it comes from God. See, it's an interesting thing about discipline. When it comes from the world and it's deserved for crimes or policy violations, God can take the suffering with that and turn it into blessing. He does it all the time. That's what he does. Because he gives you an opportunity to minister to other people that maybe have gone through the same thing. For unbelievers, as in the Noahic flood, sometimes it's quite dramatic what he does with his overruling will. And he reaches into time and space. And when all men's thoughts are only evil continually, what did he do? Discipline was rendered from God. It has come before him, Genesis 6. He says, I'm going to wipe out every living thing from this earth. I'm going to preserve Noah and his family. And that's what he did. For believers who fall into sin. But I thought believers didn't sin. Part of the problems we have in the world today was that it once was presented that real believers didn't sin. And yet the world knew they did. <laughs> It was a hypocritical approach. And the world started looking at it instead of saying, we're just a bunch of fallen creatures saved by grace through faith. That's what we are, and we're working on it. Okay, Not to get into heaven. We're working on beating the power of sin. That's, that's why we're here. 1 John 1.8, <clears throat> we're all familiar with 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I hope we know that. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. Who's the we? Who's John writing to? Believers. <laughs> That's who he's writing to all the way through 1 John. He's writing to believers. And it's interesting, along about 85 A.D. when he wrote this, all the other apostles were dead and gone by that time, except him. And he's writing this thing about 85 A.D. And, and they're still fighting over, uh, well, the, he, he wrote it to combat the Gnostics. The Gnostics said, well, Christ paid for all the sins on the cross. Therefore, there's no such thing as sin anymore. Think about that one. 
He wiped it away. He took it all away. So anything I do is not a sin. A total misunderstanding of the scripture. Total and complete. And he said, but if we do sin, this is, this is what we do. Chapter 2, verse 1, a couple of verses later, if we do sin. And John said, my children, I'm writing this to you that you might not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney. Who is a propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the whole world's sins. Those sins have been paid for, satisfied. But God does not want us to walk in them. Don't walk in the darkness, walk in the light. That's what we're called to do over and over again. Discipline comes from God. Now, how do believers battle the power of sin? I'd say confess. That should be part of it. Now, some people kind of overdo this. They spend their life looking for the sins they've committed. And boy, you can spend your life wringing your hands. Instead of going, instead of thinking, how do I do the right thing now? Because, uh, you know, confess our sins. I know some people that use 1 John 1, 9 as a formula to manipulate God. They knew they were going to sin, and they thought, well, I can just confess it, and everything will be fine and dandy with me again. And what happens is, whenever the sin is ongoing with no battle against the power of sin, when that sin is all ongoing, eventually what happens is scar tissue develops. You don't think it's as bad as it really is, and you start overlooking it. That's not a good thing. Confession of sin means, homologeo is a word, it means to speak the same. And what it means is you agree with God that this is a problem. <laughs> One of the things I find amazing, I mentioned before, we uh, were talking with a, teaching some pastors in uh, India one time and one of them was arguing about whether or not a person that was involved in a particular type of sin could be saved especially a pastor who was involved in fornication. And it was an ongoing type of thing. And he said, you can't tell me that that person is saved. And I said, fornication is not the issue. Faith is the issue. Was he saved or was he not saved? And I said, I want to ask you a question. Because you're talking about somebody who has a lifestyle that's going on like this. I said, what about a pastor that never deals with the sin of arrogance? And it stopped him in his tracks. Because he hadn't even thought about the stuff that goes on up here. See, we've got, <laughs> we've got issues up here. And the sin of arrogance is right there near the top of the list of seven worst sins anywhere that you want to find it. But how often do we confess, Father, I was arrogant? How often? It's probably one of the ones we need to pay more attention to. You know, present your body a living holy sacrifice, Romans 12, 12, 3. Don't think more highly of yourself than you're obligated to think. Don't, don't exalt yourself. Don't become arrogant. How do we battle a power of sin? Recognize it's a sin. If you don't recognize it as sin, it's a sin, you can't do battle with it. Walk worthy. Make it a lifestyle. Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 
Yeah, we've been saved by grace through faith. We have been redeemed at a great price. The Son of God took our place on a cross. That was a price for us to be able to walk in a manner worthy of Him. So how do we battle a power of sin? We battle out of thanksgiving to the Almighty. What forms can the discipline take? Well, some people say, well, look at that person. Look at that old rascally guy on Wall Street. That lives by greed, cheats people, uh, tears companies apart, ruins lives, and he, he does all that. And he just keeps getting richer and richer and richer and richer. Now, what's right with that? Where's God's discipline on him? You know, there are things that go on inside the soul that take away the peace that one has. Discipline, isn't it? For what? For being disobedient to God. To functioning in a greedy manner. Having, operating under the sin of, sin of greed. Loss of peace of mind. Through the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. There are ways that God can bring discipline on us that we never imagined. That nobody will ever see. We don't know the turmoil going on in some people's soul that live a life of wanton greed. On the outside, it looks like everything's fine, right? And that God's blessing them. Uh -uh. It's not what's really happening. Why is it never enough? Paul said, I've learned to be content in any and every circumstance, whether with a little or whether with a lot. It doesn't make any difference. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what I can do. Most people would love to have the peace that passes all understanding. To be involved in any kind of sin is not going to bring you that peace. As I mentioned before, an uh, individual in a Southeast Asian country was, was a Buddhist. He was... Uh, proclaimed a god at an early age because he was into the astral projection and transcendental meditation and all this sort of stuff. And he was so wrapped up in the demon world that he could smell them and he could hear them. He couldn't see them. They always stayed right out of his vision. But they were there to the point that they drove him almost crazy because he couldn't sleep. He couldn't get any rest. They were working on, the demons were working on him because he was a willing participant in the demonology that went on. He was a willing participant. And he finally, his crazy old grandmother gave him a Bible. She was a Christian, gave him a Bible. He starts reading it, and guess what he finds? Jesus Christ, who is his peace. That's what he finds. So what's he doing now? He's leading a bunch of other Buddhist monks to the Lord. And his question is not, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? His question is, hey, brother, have you found that peace you're looking for? Because he knows none of them has. I can show you where it is. It's his next line. Almost one a day. It's amazing, isn't it? A loss of peace of mind. So you don't know what's going through somebody's head. And you, can't, you certainly can't evaluate them based on what it looks like. It continues through various stages of intensity. 
and can end even in death. 1 John 5, 16 is called the sin unto death. That's where a believer gets so far away from God that what eventually happens, he gives them time after time after time opportunities to get back in fellowship, to know him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they keep saying no, and what happens? They can die the sin unto death. That's what happens. That's not what God wants. You know, he doesn't want an unbeliever to die the sin unto death. He wants all to be saved. That's his directive will. That's his stated will. All to be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth. That's what he wants. And if, you know, if we think like God does, that's what we should want for everybody else ourselves. But we often spend so much time trying to inspect their fruit that we don't see their need. And that's a big mistake that Christians have frequently made. Some illustrations of divine discipline. Garden of Eden. Start right there. Hey, what'd you do? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat? Of course, God knew the answer, didn't he? What did Adam finally have to do? Confess. <laughs> yeah, that woman. You remember that? At, that you gave me. She gave me from that tree. And in the Hebrew, one word, and I ate. Ah. He finally admitted it. Took a while. Kind of a round trip to get there. Scenic route. And he finally got, yeah, I'm a, I'm a mess. Divine discipline. What happened? They fell. They got sin natures. Got thrown out of the garden. That's what happened. They were expelled for disobedience. Now why? It was for their own good. Sometimes we look at divine discipline and think it's all bad. It's not all bad. Sometimes it's for our own good. Because that's what we need to be awakened. Not woke up. But we need to be awakened. How about Job? Oh, that's quite an interesting, fascinating book, isn't it? How would you like for God to call your name? Satan called Peter's name. Satan called Job's name. God said, okay, you can do that. I give you permission to, you can't kill him. Job wished he'd die after a while. But Job, he had some discipline coming for what? You have to keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. He was just a touch self-righteous. That's what he was. And God put him through some discipline, but he permiss permissive will. He gave Satan the ability to bring harm to his body and things. And what I find in Scripture is that they don't automatically, demons don't have automatically that ability to inflict harm. It takes permission for it to happen. But occasionally God gives us permission. <laughs> what did he say in 517? Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Why? It's good. God doesn't think like man does. When he disciplines us, it's for our good. How about the nation of Israel? Don't have to look far to find discipline he brought on them. Why are we disciplined? We're disciplined when we live for worldly pursuits. And it'll reap discipline for those pursuits. When we're not living to serve him, we're living to serve ourselves. Why does he bring it? For our good. So we can share his holiness.
Some people don't want to be holy. They think it'll end all their fun. Actually, it just sets them free to really have fun. That's all it does. He disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us to teach us about sin. And also to see the righteous love of the living God. You can see him at work. I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years that have got into things that weren't good for them or anybody else. And they crawled a while, if you will. But the Lord was always there to pick them up when they were ready. And then what happened? He set them on a mountaintop. They became useful to him to teach us about sin. What God uses to steer the life of the believer for our benefit. Now see, he's perfect at it. We were given earthly fathers to discipline us. That's what we're told in Hebrews 12. But see, it's valuable discipline. Sometimes, not er any earthly father, I don't think, ever properly, all the time, discipline their kids. Sometimes you get caught off guard and things just don't go like they need to go. But it says the father's love is because the father's discipline is because he loves. Now what we can look at is our heavenly father who does it perfectly every time. And he knows your buttons. You think somebody else does? He knows every button to push. He knows you're, you're, if you're a believer, you're... <laughs> You're in the hand of the potter. And the potter's wheel, what a fascinating analogy in Romans 9. Here's this wheel going round and round. Do you ever feel like your life's spinning out of control? But see, the potter's wheel's got to be spinning for the formation to occur. And then what happens? He takes a clay and he takes water and he mashes this stuff all together. And then he starts you spinning on a wheel and then he starts pushing in all the right areas to bring forth a vessel useful useful to the master that's what he does and then after he gets you this is the good part about potters because after he gets you formed just like he wants you he puts you in an oven thought about that cooks you for a while to make it set Sometimes we think, I finally passed the test. God, take it away. And he doesn't. Why doesn't he? He's cooking us. <laughs> He's making us more impervious to the problems of the world. Does it lead to a loss of salvation? A couple of quick things. Every time we uh, speak and teach, we always get Hebrews 6, 4. Those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's talking obviously about believers, the description. And then they have fallen away from the faith. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And they often say, well, maybe a believer can be disciplined and lose their salvation from the penalty for sin. Um, is all things possible with God? Didn't I read that somewhere? It's impossible for you to renew them again to repentance. No matter who you are. There's no words it's, that we can say. There are times that we just got to put people in the hands of God and let him take care of it. Tough love, hard to do, but sometimes necessary. And that's what that is saying. You can't do it. You have reached, you have used all your words. 
They need to learn. They need to hear directly from the Almighty. That's <coughs> one of the passages. The, uh, uh, the other one is Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 10, 26, we have oftentimes pastors will jump up and start pointing to that passage and read this passage. And that is, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Well, I love it when they bring it up. Because they get to say, I, I was wondering how long it would take you. Because I'm here to teach you about interpretation and in part about context. I want you to read the first 25 verses before you get there. You don't even have to go that far. Go to the first 10 and read them. What's it talking about? Levitical offering sacrifices. What happened when Christ offered the perfect sacrifice, Hebrews 10.10? 10. One sacrifice for sin for all time, now he's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Those sacrifices are, are no good as a ritual anymore. What did the Jews used to do? They sinned however they wanted to because they thought they could buy their way out with a sacrifice. So they'd come up on Passover some other time, they'd bring their offering up and, oh, I'm cleansed again from all my sins. But he says in that passage, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That whole context that says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins says that Levitical offering system that you played all those games with for all those centuries doesn't exist anymore. You can't play those games. So now what are you going to do about going on sinning willfully? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's warning them about discipline like they have not imagined. The Jews have been through it multiple times, right? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Persia, and Rome. They're, they're slow learners. They are indeed a picture of God's grace. The Levitical sacrifices, his discipline may be punitive, could involve mental or physical pain, may be the result of sowing corruption and reaping corruption, principle taught in Galatians 6, and scars will remain. As the Lord may choose to leave the effects to teach endurance, we may undergo some various types of discipline. Why does he leave them? To hamper arrogance. Why did Paul have a thorn in the flesh? To keep him from exalting himself. Sometimes we get a little too arrogant and God's discipline knows how to handle it. But here's the good part. See that star there at the bottom? Yeah, see it's still working. Turning to the Lord in the middle of all that discipline. Not necessarily removes the discipline, but it can turn it to blessing in various forms. He blesses us so we can be a blessing to other people. He's made the vessel usable in service to the master along the way. And as we see that, we see it as important. It gives us a whole different perspective on life. Let's pray. Father, it's such a blessing, once again, to be able to look at your word and your plan. 
And let's just see how amazing it is. And all we get is a very little glimpse into it. Things that we just barely understand in, in one way. And Father, that's so clear in another. You see the end from the beginning. You've included us in your plan. And for that, we'll be forever thankful. We ask you to continue to bless us in spiritual ways primarily. So we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be your witnesses everywhere we go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.